Well, welcome. We're so glad that you're with us this weekend here at Christ Community Chapel. Welcome to those watching online and to those watching at the Aurora campus. Welcome. We're so glad that you are with us. It is cold outside this weekend, but it is warm in here. And you're a part of that. Man, I, this, these uh, last few weekends, the energy here in the Hudson campus in the room has been so great. I'm so thankful that you show up uh, excited and ready to worship and make this such a wonderful place. And if you're new, keep coming. You're going to see that. You probably already feel it. But each week as we gather together, people are glad to be here. And the energy in this room is just so great. And I think that probably has to do with our January sermon series and our theme for the year, at least up until September when something new comes. But up until that time, we're talking about love matters most. And this month in January, we've been looking at a couple of famous passages in the Bible about love. And we've been thinking about God's love for us and the way God calls us to love our neighbors. It's been very encouraging. I hope you have felt that and experienced that. And I hope you will experience that this week as well. In fact, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go ahead and open it to the book of Romans chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 6 and read through verse 10. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen behind me. You can follow along. But as you're turning there or waiting for it to be up on the screen, let me invite you to see a couple of things as we read. I really believe this passage is teaching us two things. There's a comparison in the passage. You'll see comparing one thing with the other. And I think if we understand one of them, just one of them, not even both, just one, it will change the way we see ourselves and the way we see God and the way we think about almost everything. But if we get both of them, it will change our lives. So I really hope you're ready for that and you're going to lean into that as we read Romans 5, 6 through 10. Let's read it together. Here's what it says. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. This is God's word. I told you there are two things here. Just seeing one of them will change the way you think about everything. And it really will. It'll change the way you see yourself. It'll change the way you see God. But if you get both of them, it'll change your life. Right here, right now, it'll change everything about you. And I want to show you those two things and then tease out the implication. And that's the form the outline takes. If you're a note taker, you can write these down. Otherwise, just kind of think about them as mile markers to plot our course. And the outline is this. Number one, Love can't be math. Love can't be math. Number two, love has to be more. And number three, then love will be most. Love can't be math. It has to be more. And then it will be most. 
Let me start with the first one, love can't be math. You can see in the passage that what the writer is doing is comparing two things. He's comparing who we would die for versus who God would die for. And that comparison is important, but we have to be careful that we don't skip over the first part to get to the second part. That we're not so eager to hear about the love of God that we don't stop for a second and consider the first part of the comparison where Paul asks the question, who would you die for? He says, some people would die for a righteous person. Not, not many, hardly anybody. Some people might. Some would die for a good person. The implication he's making is that if you were going to die for someone, you wouldn't just die for anyone. I don't know if you keep a list in your pocket of the people you would die for. Probably not. That's pretty morbid. But you would admit, if you thought about it, who would I die for? That's a pretty short list. And, and he's hinting at that, right? Because he's saying you wouldn't die for a bad person. You wouldn't die for just any person. You would die for someone you knew was worth dying for. You would do a kind of math. You would do a kind of accounting where you would say, is this person worth dying for? Is this person worth trading my life in order to protect theirs? And it would be a short list. But it's not just that we would only die for certain people. That's not his point. His point is that kind of adding up, that kind of mathematics, that kind of moral calculus, which says this person is worth dying for and this person isn't worth dying for, is how we think about love. We think about love like it's math. We ask, is this person worth it? You can understand this if you think about it this way. It's not just who we would die for, but who we would live for. Because actually loving anyone requires you to die in some ways. Like for example, have you ever brought a newborn baby home? If you do, you are going to die. Not literally, you'll want to die literally. Figuratively, you will die, you will sleep less. You will handle bodily fluids, you'd rather not. You will hold the baby and beg it, plead with it, hostage negotiate with it to stop crying. You will trade comfort. You will trade uh, health. You will trade happiness for this baby. Loving this baby will cause you to die in a lot of ways. The same as if you get married. You know, at every wedding, we do some rendition of some basic vows. And those vows say things like, I'm going to love you no matter what. I'm going to love you in sickness or in health, in poverty or in wealth, right? No matter what life throws at us, I'm going to love you. And what we're saying to that person is you're worth loving. I've done the math. You're worth it no matter what. But if you've been married for any length of time, you would say you have to do that math all the time. You're always asking, do I still think my spouse is worth it? It's amazing to me how many couples will come back to the pastor or parents a month after the wedding, and at the wedding they said, you're worth it no matter what. But then they stop back in the office and they say things like, he doesn't pick his underwear up off the bathroom floor, and I'm just not sure he's worth it. They say, boy, that changed quickly. But even if you've never brought home a newborn baby, and even if you've never gotten married, let me give you an analogy we'll all make that will make sense to all of us. You ever had a friend who moves? You will ask yourself, are they worth it? Are they worth showing up and helping them move? Are they worth 
the effort and the time. We're always doing this kind of math. We're always evaluating whether or not a person is worth our time, whether or not a relationship is worth the investment. That is how we think about love. But if that's true, then it's also true that everyone in relationship with us is also doing that kind of math. They're also asking whether or not we're worth loving, whether or not we're worth the investment. And everyone gets this from an early age. In fact, let me give you an analogy that'll make sense. My three-year-old son, Graham, sleeps with four stuffed animals every night. He calls them his buddies. He cannot sleep without them. That's probably bad parenting, but that's another sermon. The four stuffed animals are the dragon that he had got from his mother when she was a little girl, a lion he names Carnivore, Moondog, the mascot of the Cavaliers, and Brutus Buckeye. Those are his four buddies. He sleeps with them every night. And when he gets out of bed after bedtime, he loses a buddy. And I make him line them up like a firing squad, and I take one. And in fact, when I get home late at night, if I have missed putting him to bed, I know what kind of night it's been by how many of his buddies are on the shelf outside of his room. I can look at my wife and say, ooh, three-buddy night. That's a rough one. But I remember one night when I went into his room, I was working on a project, and he, I was frustrated because he had gotten up so many times, and Brutus and Moondog are his favorite. And I had already taken the dragon, and I had already taken the lion, and I was going in there, and I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he knew, and I knew, and I took Moondog, and I walked out, shut the door behind me. And all of a sudden, I heard him weeping. I mean, wailing. And I stood outside the door to hear him calm down, and he said this, Brutus, he got Moondog. I got up. I'm so sorry. It was like a watching a war movie. His buddy had gotten shot. Why was he apologizing to Brutus Buckeye? It's because even at three, he was worried that Brutus wouldn't be his buddy anymore. Because after all, he'd gotten out of bed. And he had cost both of them three other friends. And you see, that's where so many of us live as it relates to love. Feeling as though love is something other people earn from us, and love is something we must earn from them. And if we're having a good week and we're performing well, then we feel very lovable. But we also feel like we better work hard to maintain it. Or if we've had a bad week, we feel unlovable. Maybe if we've had a bad life, we feel as though no one can love us. Our math doesn't add up. And most of us live in between, in between the great week and in between the bad week, full of insecurity, wondering, am I lovable? Do people around me really love me or are they just keeping score? And if they're keeping score, is my score good or is it not? How do I know if I'm loved? How do I know if I will be loved? How do I know if I can keep it? And this is how we think about love and so this is how we think about God. Most of us think that God is like us. He loves based on math. He loves based on a scoreboard. If you're good, he loves you. If you're bad, eh. 
In fact, you can know this because when you ask most people, when you die, where do you think you're going to go? Most people will say, I think I'm going to go to heaven. And when you say why, they will say, because I believe good people go to heaven. Now that sounds really nice at first. But think about what you're really saying when you say that. I believe that God is keeping score. And if your score is good, you get to be loved by him. But of course, that begs a question, doesn't it? If God is keeping score, where is the scoreboard? And how do you know what your score is? And how do you know how many points you get for good things and how many points you lose for bad things? How could you ever have any confidence that God really loves you? And in fact, we don't. And that's why, if you think about it, almost all religion is an argument for how to improve your score. God lets good people into heaven. So if you pray, that's good. If you show up to church, that's good. If you rub these beads, that's good. If you pray facing this direction, that's good. If you walk these, this path, if you uphold these pillars, if you keep these sacraments, if you do these things and you don't do these things, then in the end, your score will be good and you will be loved by God. But nobody really knows. And that's why we show up week in and week out full of insecurity saying, I love based on math and those around me love based on math. But what if God loves that way? How could I ever know then if God loves me? Listen, if you come in saying all good people go to heaven or you come in saying there's no way God could ever love me because of what I've done. You're really saying the same thing. God keeps score, and that's how he decides. But friends, if that's true, then no one here could ever know for sure that God loves them. We need something better than math. We need something better than good people go to heaven. We need for love to be something more. And that brings me to my second point, which is to say, love can't be math. It has to be more. And that's exactly the point the writer is making. He says, when you think about who you would die for, and when I think about who I would die for, I think about who is worth it. But God doesn't think that way. In fact, look at what he says. Look at the passage with me, beginning in verse 6. I want you to notice what he says about us the people that Jesus died for. Look at what he says in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners. Verse 10, while we were enemies, you see, the, the writer is saying that when you and I think about love, we think about math. We think about keeping score. We think who's worth it. Am I worth it? Good people go to heaven. God keeps score. God loves based on what you do. But the writer says when you hear the story of Jesus, here's what you realize. It is when, when we're weak, when we're ungodly, when we're sinners, when we're enemies of God, that Jesus died for us. Let me tie this up for you in a handy little phrase you can keep in your pocket. When we were at our worst, God loved us with his best. I want to say that again. When we were at our worst, 
God loved us with his best. In fact, we're going to do something weird and it's going to be uncomfortable, but we're going to embrace it. I want you to say that after me because I want you to remember it. When we were at our worst, let me just stop and say you crushed that. Great job. Great job. Let's do it again. When we were at our worst, God loved us with his best. That sounds really nice, but it's better if you personalize it. When I was at my worst, God loved me with his best. That's right. That's what the writer is saying. Now listen, hear that. Because the story of Jesus is that Jesus came and in his living showed us that we are not great. Jesus came and in his patience revealed our pride and our anger. Jesus came and in his forgiveness revealed our bitterness. Jesus came and in his kindness revealed our are being unkind. Jesus exposes us. When you read the life of Jesus, you like him and you hate him. It's like standing next to a really good-looking person. You appreciate it, but you kind of hate them for it. And that's what reading the life of Jesus is. And yet when Jesus came, he did not come to keep score. He didn't show up to a village and go, they're sick. I can heal them. Can you? Ha! One point for me, zero for you. I just forgave that person. Three points for me. You didn't. You lose two. No, that's not why he came. He came to live in our place and to go to the cross to die for our sins so that the anger and judgment and wrath of God that is rightfully on us as sinners and ungodly and enemies could be poured out on him. Jesus came when we were at our worst to love us with God's best, his own life. And you say, why is that so important? Here's why it's so important. Because the central claim of Christianity over and against all other religions is this, that the love of God has absolutely nothing to do with your performance. The love of God has nothing to do with your morality. The love of God has nothing to do with your righteousness. But the But we can flip it. The love of God has nothing to do with your lack of morality or your lack of righteousness or your lack of a good life. You see, if it's true, then when we were at our worst, God loved us with his best, then that means we could never go so low that he wouldn't keep on loving us. The writer says it this way, for God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, Christianity is the good news that God doesn't love based on math. God isn't keeping score. God loves because of who he is. And that since that idea is so radical and so crazy and sounds too good to be true, he proved it by coming in Jesus and living and dying and rising from the dead to say, see, I told you, I came and showed you, you were sinners, you were ungodly, you were enemies, but I loved you enough to die in your place anyways. Friends, if this is true, then think about what that means. If it's true that when we were at our worst, God loved us with his best, then that means there is not a single person in this room who is not lovable to God. 
And you say, well, you don't know who I am. Okay, well, would this sum you up? Would you call yourself weak? Oh, yeah, I'm so weak. Would you call yourself ungodly? Definitely. Would you call yourself an enemy of God? Yeah. Would you say you're still a sinner? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's exactly who Jesus died for. So if you wandered in this weekend saying, I'm just wondering, is there any way that God could love me? Every other religion in the world would say to you, well, look up at the scoreboard, try harder. But the gospel of Jesus, the story of the Bible, the essence of Christianity is that, friend, God has never loved you because of what you've done or haven't done. God loves you because of who you are. Love is more to God than math. It is who he is. He loves us because of who he is, not because of who we are. Now, here's the second implication of that. If that's true, then not only does it mean that every single person in this room right now, no matter what, no matter where you come from, no matter what you did, no matter what you did today, no matter what you wish you were doing right now, no matter what, God loves you. But here's the other implication of that. If God's love for us is not based on our performance, if we don't earn it, then we can't lose it. Because you see, if good people go to heaven, you just better hope you die at the right time. But if God's love isn't rooted in performance, then you couldn't lose it. Now the writer picks up on that. I want you to see something. He'll talk about what Jesus has done, and then he'll talk about what God will do. The verb tense here is so important. God has done this, therefore he will do this. Let me show you that. Look with me at the passage. Throw it up on the screen, please, if we can. Look at what he says. Verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. You hear the past tense? Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Listen to what he says. Much more shall we, that's future language, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, he thinks maybe you didn't hear him, so he says it again, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, past tense, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, listen, shall we be saved by his life. The writer says, listen, if it's true that when we were at our worst, God loved us with his best, that means we could never be lower and he could never give us more. So the implication is what he's given us is ours forever. I want you to think about that. Because if you came in this weekend saying good people go to heaven, you are dooming yourself to a life of insecurity and a life of dreading the day that you actually find out your score. But if you came in looking for something more, here it is. God loved you at your worst enough to give you his best. Therefore, not only are you lovable because it's never been about what you do and it's never been about what you don't do, God will never let his love go away from you. That is what God's love is like. You see, when you begin to understand the gospel of Jesus, you begin to understand that it's inviting you to do a very simple thing, to not define God's love by the way you love, but rather to redefine your understanding of love 
based on the way God loves. God loves us because of who he is, not because of what we do. That leads me to the third point, which is to say, if love isn't math, if it's something more, then it can matter most. If I said to you that our understanding of love is the single most defining thing about our lives, I doubt you would disagree. Knowing who you love and who loves you is a major part of forming your identity. If you don't believe me, just think about it this way. Those of us who grew up in homes that were loving, places of nurture, places of comfort, have experienced in adulthood how that set us ahead. And those of us who lacked that, those of us who had to fill that void, understand how that became a major part of shaping our identity. So that you understand that what you understand about God's love, whether you think you earn it or whether you think it's yours simply because of who God is, is everything about you. And yet, you have to choose to take hold of that love. Because you see, if it's true that we cannot earn God's love, we just have to freely receive it in Jesus. That our life will never add up to a score high enough, but that Jesus' life lived in our place and given in our place will, then those of us who grew up religious, we cannot begin a relationship with God until we lay our religion down. Until we say to God, I am sorry that I ever thought I could be good enough that you would love me. And I'm so grateful that you love me when I'm at my worst with your best. But those of us who come in full of shame, saying God could never love me, have to lay down that almost reverse kind of pride where we say, I have climbed so low. I have gone so deep in my sin and in my addiction and in my brokenness that I'm unlovable to God. We would have to say, I'm so sorry, God, that I ever thought you were keeping score. I see now that you love me because of who you are and that your love is mine regardless of what I've done. But either way, we have to grab hold of Jesus Where are you with that? Where are you with that? Because you can keep coming week after week, and you are welcome to do that, and we're so glad every time you're here. But you're going to have to decide whether or not you can grab hold of this idea that God loves you not on the basis of performance, but on the basis of Jesus. That you can say, when I was at my lowest point, God loved me with his best. When I was still a sinner, Jesus died for me anyway. Have you made that decision? Have you grabbed hold of Jesus? If not, now is the time. But if you have, brother or sister in Christ, what does this mean for us? It means everything. And let me show you how that is. First, let me give you a rhythm to life that if we believe Romans 5.8, this rhythm should be ours. First, do you understand we receive this love every day? 
Listen, that's why when you come to a service at Christ Community Chapel, we sing the same themes every week. We pray the same themes. We preach the same themes. That repetitiveness, that redundancy is intentional because we're so prone to believing that we have to perform. We're so prone to thinking that a good week means God really loves me and a bad week means I should stay away until I get better. And so every week we sing and preach and pray and read and talk about about how God's love for us is not about our performance, but about Jesus. You and I need to receive that every single day. That's why it's so important we spend time in the scriptures, not to check a box and not to get God to love us, but to remind ourselves that no matter what I do today, God loves me. No matter whether it's a great day or an awful day, God loves me. I can't lose it because I didn't earn it. He loves me because of who he is, not who I am. And if we receive it, then here's the second thing that will be true of us. We will find rest. We have to be honest and say that much of what drives our religious busyness is a belief that God's keeping score. What if we measured our belief in God's love for us being about Jesus and not about us and how restful we were? In how secure we were. And how satisfied we were in what God has done in us and in who we are and in what he's said about us. Do you feel at rest? And if you don't, and if I don't, and if we don't, don't you see that the remedy for that is not more scoring, but receiving that it's never been about score. But then, if we receive and we rest, we will return that love. I know if you grew up in church, you're freaking out right now because the idea is, well, wait a minute, are you telling people what they do doesn't matter? It'll be anarchy. But that's not true. Have you ever really, truly been loved? What happens? Do you find yourself pushing away? That newborn baby who's ruining your life? When it cries, you're the only one that can console it. That day when my wife wanted to exchange vows and say that I was worth loving no matter what, my wedding day, it was 105 degrees outside. I was in a black tuxedo and we took pictures at noon outside. But I showed up. Not because I wanted to be there, because I didn't. But because I wanted to show her one sweat drop at a time (laughs) that I loved her back the way she loved me. Friends, that is why we come. We don't come to score points. We come to say to the one who scored all the points on our behalf, I am yours, I am here, I love you, what do you want? When you were at your worst, God loved you with his best. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the way you love us. If you had decided to keep score, that would have made sense to us. And we would have tried our best or we would have given up and known we couldn't do it. 
but you chose to love us freely. To send Jesus to live in our place and to die in our place and to raise him from the dead as proof that all of us who grab hold of him will not be disappointed. God, you have loved us because of who you are and we praise you for that. And yet, as we sit here, Christian or not, religious person or not, we would admit it is so hard to believe. Help us, Holy Spirit, grab hold of what is ours in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.